Welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. My name's Andrew Nesbitt. And I'm Alex Pounds. And together, we're talking with folks from around the world of package management. We're exploring the technical details, hearing the stories and the histories of their projects, and learning about the communities around them too. Today, we're talking all about security, and starting with typosquatting, where nefarious folk created packages with similar names to existing ones, in the hopes that other people install them by mistake. We're joined by Adam Baldwin, who's the team lead at Lyft Security and the Node Security Platform. Adam, welcome to The Manifest. Hey, everybody. Let's get started by talking about typosquatting. Was my summary complete? What is typosquatting? Well, for me, typosquatting is exactly how you described. It's when somebody puts up a package with some type of content with a slightly different name to a popular package with the intent that they will install it one way of getting your malicious software onto their computer. What's the history of this? What's the first typo squat that we know of? Within the NPM registry, I typo squatted CoffeeScript. The actual module name is Coffee-Script. Before that, though, typo squatting originated uh, within the, the DNS system domain names, right? Wanting to get traffic from a popular site to a site that you control, say, for phishing or for some other reasons. And what did you do with that? CoffeeScript package that you had typosquat on? When we published the CoffeeScript module, the intent was not something malicious. The actual module itself didn't do anything. I believe it had a console log that says, if you've discovered this, please email me, right? So it didn't actually mimic the behavior of CoffeeScript. And it took about a week and about 200 downloads before Isaac Sluter, who had created the registry, got an email that said that I had squatted on this package and, and wasted a lot of time of, of somebody that was trying to install it because it did nothing. And I felt pretty strongly to not cross that ethical boundary of trying to do something nefarious, right? I, I wanted to research and understand if people were making these mistakes, but do so ethically, right? And after that, you know, when Isaac found out about that, he was interested in the fact that, that this was a potential problem with the registry. And so in discussions with him, I got him to provide the Apache logs for the registry. And to do the research, we took the top 100 modules or top 1,000 by download count. And we took and ran those through TypoJS to generate typos. And then using those typo variants, we looked for 404 entries in the registry HTTP log. That gave us sort of an indication on which variants would be potentially installed. Also, which ones were interesting targets? One of the top ones that fell out of that was actually CoffeeScript, the module that I typo squatted. So it was interesting to find that out. And the reason uh, is that it was punctuation. All of the ones that have punctuation in their names floated to the top of most likely to be typoed. Is it uglify.js or just uglify.js or dash.js? Well, you might forget. It's easy to typo that. So do you want to... Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into doing security research. Yeah, so my background in security goes back to when I was 15. Uh, I basically got in trouble breaking into a bulletin board system. I guessed an easy-to-guess admin password and uh, got caught because I lived in a small town. So I bragged around and the, the owner got in touch with me. He wasn't unhappy with me. He actually offered me a job. And so it was a bit of a crossroads for me. To see that as not getting in trouble, instead he sort of taught me about reverse engineering and programming. I did Visual Basic, and I had a mentor 
and a strong relationship with a mentor that led me to wanting to do different projects and play around in, 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 a, in a safe way, right? From there, you know, as my career progressed, I, I did a lot of defensive work in security, just like, you know, working for internet service providers, we were constantly getting compromised, and, and so learning how systems worked and systems were vulnerable and, and those kind of things, being on the defensive was very interesting. Um, probably 16 years ago, I went to work for Symantec, did some work there, and that, that then got me eventually into their consulting group and doing more offensive security work, such as penetration testing and things like that, and led to where I am sort of now. So with your start coming by breaking into a BBS, we're probably talking at least 20 years ago, right? Mm, 23 years ago. Okay. How would you say the security landscape has changed over that time? What's interesting is, is that vulnerability that I used to get into that bulletin board system is one of the primary ways that we use to get into any system. Be that, say, another developer's account on GitHub or NPM or PyPy, right? People are still using easily guessed passwords. That has not changed. And that's unfortunate, right? Uh, that human element, that sort of laziness creeps in and affects the security of not only your account, but for registries, because of that deeply nested dependency tree, that affects a lot of other people consuming your software, especially if you're a maintainer. And a lot of these attacks, including typo squatting, feel very much aimed at the human part of the system as opposed to looking for a weak point in the code directly. Yes, I'd agree with that for sure. Humans, I think, are one of the weakest links. So in a way, you kind of kicked off the latest round of typo squatting attacks on NPM with your CoffeeScript hack. And as well as revealing that hole, it also kind of showed other people that this was something they could do. What kind of motivations do attackers have? What are they looking to get out of this when they do install a malicious package? So attackers' motivations vary widely. I can tell a few interesting things that we've seen uh, in the registry recently, uh, and that has to do with financial motivation. So uh, one thing that we've seen attackers do is install CryptoCoin miners. And so you, you install this malicious package, it just starts mining away for them. I'm not sure how lucrative it's been for them, but uh, I don't think they were on the registry very long or had that many downloads. The other thing we've seen is another package that just opened up a remote command and control uh, shell. The motivations there could be targeting specific users of those dependencies Conveniently enough, those dependencies were used as part of Bitcoin ATMs. So again, financially motivated there, I would guess. You know, other ones have been used to steal SSH keys, right? So continuing to persist or escalate access once they've got access to a developer's machine, get an, uh, an SSH key, and then continue to weasel their way into a network, get access to other things, right? So anything from command execution to data access and exfiltration to financial motivation. I personally think that something we haven't seen yet, but I believe that we're going to see is ransomware. Uh, we've seen that with ransoming Mongo databases to just installing malware and it encrypts your drive and requires you know a, a Bitcoin payoff to, to decrypt, right? And do you get the impression that all of the attackers are going to be essentially drive-by attackers? They're looking to get installed on a machine and don't really care what it is. It's much more opportunistic like that. Or have you seen any cases where it seemed a lot more targeted? I think we're at a phase where it's pretty unsophisticated attacks. 
that is changing though. So I think that while we're looking at sort of these drive-by test the waters uh, with some you know easy payloads, some real basic encoding. We've seen encoding using everything from Base64 to using Webpack, right? Using our own tools sort of against us to, to package up an exploit. Those are going to get increasingly advanced, but I don't think that typo squatting is a very targeted attack. It's sort of a, for a more targeted attack, you're going to be going after a specific dependency of a project that you know about, right? And the fact that we've got this really interesting dependency graph built into GitHub now or something like libraries.io, right, where we've got knowledge of a dependency graph of a particular company's project. You can now see that dependency tree and you can look and you can target specific developers because you can correlate that with collaborators. And that's why I'm really, really glad to see NPM adding two-factor authentication, right? Yeah, so that's quite an interesting tangent. One of the potential escalation points of taking over a random developer's machine is the the kind of worm ability of being able to then check and see if they have their own packages, their own local keys for publishing to NPM, and then rolling that out across kind of any packages it finds, which then can have that knock-on effect potentially. I know that there in 2016, right, there's big talk about the NPM worm ability. I just don't believe the impact of that. I think if you hit the right person, yes. It's going to be a very slow-moving worm, and I think that it's going to be identified and noticed by the community before it actually does anything. The reality is, is that there's way more consumers of NPM than there are of consumers and maintainers of packages. However, when you talk about focused attacks on individual accounts and some of the research that Chalker did on weak passwords, and I had done some research about a year before that on people using their username as their password, and it's amazing what you find for prolific developers using extremely weak passwords. It's amazing the results that he got. I think at last count, he had control of something like 56% of the registry based on the accounts he had control of and weak passwords and leaked keys. Yeah, so the leaked keys has actually become quite a source of risk, I guess, recently, especially as these massive databases of people's passwords and email addresses go out onto the web. Uh, Have I Been Pwned is a really good example of how much data there is keyed into your email. Given that every user's email address is public on the registry, you can then go and see, ah, well, how many different passwords have they had leaked due to numerous security vulnerabilities on other people's websites? I guess it comes back to the problem of not necessarily weak passwords, but shared passwords across a lot of the different web services that people are using, including their registry Yeah, and as a result of that, we've gotten some great security controls within NPM. Two-factor authentication, read-only tokens, as well as sort of rate-limiting controls for login brute forcing and things like that, right? One of the things that's worth bearing in mind when we talk about the targeted nature of attacks is that there is this kind of semi-targeted range where even if you're not targeting at a specific user or a specific organization, Targeting developers as a class is quite a tempting target for an attacker because developers often have those SSH keys, like you've said, or potentially have secrets in their local machine and their local code checkouts or API keys to other services. So attackers may well want to steal AWS credentials and spin up an instance to mine Bitcoin or send spam or whatever. 
similarly, you can steal things like send good keys and things like that with that. They are tempting targets. This is sort of the my argument with DevOps is like DevOps is great, but you still shouldn't be sloppy with your production keys. Your developers having those production keys on your system becomes a big risk for something like this. And so you still want that separation of environment variables or keys or tokens or whatever. So let's talk a little bit about NPM. And over the so far short life of this podcast, NPM has received a fair amount of stick from other people. People have often held it up as an example of things not to do. So I asked this question in as unloaded fashion as possible. Do you like NPM? I actually really like NPM and I'm partially biased because I've put a lot of my time and energy into that ecosystem. As with any platform, there are ways to improve it though. And there's ways that they can improve the security of that platform for for the whole ecosystem. So by no means are they done, by no means is NPM perfect. And they're aware, like when people complain about things, chances are they're aware of it and it's somewhere on their roadmap. I am a mere observer of the landscape and have no dog in this fight. But please tell us, what is it that you like about NPM? First thing that came to mind was the people behind it. I absolutely love the people that are behind NPM and think that they put a massive amount of their energy into making things better for us. For me, it's the simplicity. I run NPM install. It just works. I don't seem to have all the performance problems or any weird issues with it that other people seem to complain about. It just works for me. That's what I like about it. It's fast for me. Now, you mentioned that NPM has introduced things like two-factor authentication and other security features. Could you tell us some more about that and what those features are and how they work and how that helps protect developers using NPM? Sure. So starting with the, what I think is one of the most important ones is two-factor auth. Even if you're using a weak password, two-factor authentication is going to require that you have access to one of their devices, right? It's going to require that for either authenticating or authenticating and publishing a package. They've also chosen to not use uh, SMS as a transport device for those tokens, which a lot of vendors do, but there's just been so many known sort of attacks. So they've chosen to not do that, and they only do the QR code, you know, rolling one-time code two-factor auth. I mean, that's what's going to protect your, your publishes. I've heard uh, at Node Interactive, CJ talked about, you know, having popular packages or, or orgs be able to enforce two-factor auth so that you could see that like, okay, everyone for Express has two-factor auth enabled, right? Because that's super important. Again, it would be really hard to enforce all the way down that giant dependency tree, but that's an interesting uh, feature. And that's for package maintainers and publishers, right? The only way to publish a new version of a package is if you provide that two-factor auth code as well as your username password. Correct. And that way, if Again, your login, your auth token got stolen. Let's say you typoed a package and your auth token got, you know, ganked. Well, you need that two-factor auth code. It becomes less valuable. Uh, That's also interesting in case that token got leaked, right? So if you use that token to set up a CI service and that got leaked in the logs, well, that token is not as valuable without that other factor. That brings us sort of to the other feature, which is read-only tokens instead of read-write tokens, which were the default before. So if you are setting up a CI service where it needs access to your private packages or needs access to do something authenticated on NPM, you could generate a read-only token provided to that service. And again, it can't publish new packages as you. 
one thing I've heard people say when talking about NPM is it feels a bit more vulnerable than some other package managers just because of the more modular nature of JavaScript. The dependency graphs tend to be a lot deeper. There tend to be a lot more smaller packages involved in the JavaScript world compared to other languages and systems. How do you feel about that? Do you feel that has an impact? I don't necessarily think that that's a quantified measure of, say, increased risk. Maybe because you have a lot more maintainers in the mix. You have a lot more people, a lot more potential for those people to make mistakes or to have lax security. So on the one hand, yes, I guess there is going to be some increased risk there. It's probably not any more code necessarily, though. I would think that they, you know, from a, a technical perspective, you're not going to introduce more flaws there. Uh, it's going to be a bigger burden to audit because of the number of those smaller packages. But it also is a lot easier to audit because those little modules do one thing. Actually, just to tangent, I think that that's something we could do a better job of in the community somehow is capturing which ones have been looked at. Because if I look at a module as a researcher and I look at it, it's like, well, it does one thing. It does this one thing really well. It does what it says on the box. I move on. But nobody else in the community really knows that I've looked at that. And that may not be perfect, but it would give an indicator of confidence for that module. So I've been looking at that particular problem in my, I guess, day job at Libraries.io trying to quantify more of the activities around how people maintain their packages and their open source in general and kind of look beyond the commit log because the commit log really only shows code contributions and ignores everything else that happens around open source that is needed to make those things work. And that includes governance, support, even like going to the point of events and community get-togethers that are organized that all go towards actually making a successful piece of open source. And one of the things that I kind of was at a loss for was how do you record in a public way if you did something to review something, but you found that no changes were required, where do you put that in a way that is indexable? It doesn't really fit very well into a Git repository. The only kind of way that I could see that working was essentially having like a changelog file or a folder full of files where essentially you date a review and you you write down the checklist of here's the things I did, here's the results I found. And probably those results are everything was fine. I will come back in six months if there have been changes and I will look again. But there hasn't really been, at least in the application level world, ways of people have been describing what they've been doing when it comes to reviewing those different kinds of things. I've been searching after this for quite a while and it's very difficult to describe that work. We don't have a way of sort of universally saying what we did and have that be in a sort of a machine-readable format. As an example, I've looked at every single childprocess.exec usage in the modules, right? That was back when there's probably 20,000 modules in the registry. I looked at every single one for command injection, right? So at one point I could say, yeah, I audited all the modules, but for what? And being able to sort of describe and define that is very difficult. If people listening have ideas and thoughts, I'd love to hear them and collaborate on them. It's a difficult problem that I think needs a social component to it. On a related note, not directly connected to security, but I think a similar solution could help around licenses and IP 
in the same kind of a lawyer has reviewed this license and we've spoken to everyone who's involved and they have confirmed that they were the owner of the copyright or they were allowed to make this commit either with or without a contributor license agreement and we have confirmed that that is all fine at the moment the kind of situation is we will do our own checking and we will keep that information to ourselves, and we will never share that back out so no one knows and there's a lot of rework so people like black duck they get to sell that same review process over and over there's not much incentive there for them to publicly share that work because that actually makes it a lot easier to mitigate against bad license information or good license information because it would be potentially machine readable or at least easily reviewable. Clearly, we need some kind of blockchain. (laughs) It's always the blockchain. That's a whole other episode, I think, package managers and blockchains. Yeah, I have a lot of skepticism around cryptocurrencies and things like that. But Maybe in terms of like the proof of work and verifying, you know, like a signature chain and things like that, it might actually be applicable in this field. It very well might be. I think a lot of companies would balk at, you know, sharing some of that for potential legal liability, right? You've got companies, you know, large companies, Walmart, PayPal, using some module system or, or whatever. And like, are they going to really share that, you know, we looked for these things and we said it's cool, right? Like, had to be some way of dumping liability off of them or have it be anonymous. But then if you have anonymous, you have other problems of sort of like trolls and abusers. And so there has to be some social tie in there for blocking abuse. I guess there's also the reverse security aspect of I could potentially pretend to be a security researcher and I say this package is fine when I know that it's really not. But I can redirect people's efforts away and think, oh, I don't need to review this because Andrew already looked at it. And Andrew said it was okay, so I can install this. That's what I thought of in the first days of sort of like the node security project. And I got paranoid about it. And I actually think that was a failure on my part. For the most part, nobody really gives a darn about some small module, right? Like a vulnerability, and it's not going to create a lot of issue. And even if you have that vulnerability for a little while, somebody's going to find it out sooner or later, right? It's not an operating system, right? So it's not like these have that far-reaching impacts. And the the way you can also get around it is by having somebody else perform the work the second time around. As a new module is published, now that sort of review is invalidated. They can no longer assert the same thing. So, of course, it's just a cat-and-mouse game. Yeah, I don't want to play architecture astronaut here and try and devise some hypothetical perfect system where all that's necessary is for somebody to come down and actually do the hard work of building it. But I imagined it would be something more like you're not making any claims about the security. It's just a way of saying, I, Adam, examine the source code for this package at this version. And having that in a way which is cryptographically secure enough that I can be reasonably confident that, yes, it was you, Adam, that did it. And also be able to see which version was audited in that way. And then you're just kind of using both your own reputation as something to do it. And also you can see which aspects of the code have been looked at the most. Something like Express is going to have a lot of reviews. And if it's got, say, 100 reviews, it doesn't matter to you too much who those people were. It's that many eyes make bugs shallow. If it had any glaring flaws in it, they would have become apparent by now. Whereas if it's a module which you can see, okay, nobody's looked at this. Maybe I should look at that and then stick that out into the world and say, oh, I looked at this. 
that potentially helps with the tragedy of the commons where as you say you hope that express being really popular means that it has many more people reviewing it but when we saw i forget the name of the exploit but uh the issues with bash and it was like oh right bash is a thing someone should be looking at bash but we assume because everyone uses it and it's just there like air that someone else is looking at this thing turns out not many people were paying much attention to that blockchains are one aspect of using cryptography for things like this but we also have closely related ideas such as signing packages and checksumming files how much do they help with assuring the integrity of a package well we already have that now and we've had that in npm and i believe other package managers for quite a while we have sha hashing and you know now the ability to go beyond say just a regular sha one or they basically implemented sub-resource integrity. So we have you know, known ways of making sure the content that showed up on your desktop is in fact what was requested. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't tampered with. That doesn't guarantee that somebody at NPM uh, or compromise system didn't compromise the tarball as well as the hash, although that would be an interesting feat. We do have integrity via hashes. That's good. But we don't have package signing. And it's something that people scream from the rooftops that will solve all of our problems. What is package signing and will it solve all of our problems? No, it will not solve all our problems. Package signing, I guess, is where you, somebody with an identity, cryptographically verifiable identity, right, that you could prove that it was me, signs that content. So you know exactly what you're getting and that NPM didn't tamper with it, right? It wasn't tampered at the uh, the provider, right, or PyPy or ruby gems but that's not going to help when it comes to typo squatting at all right because even if the typo squatted package that was installed was signed and hadn't been tampered with on the way through you're, you're going to pass through everything with green flags but you've still installed a malicious package exactly because it's still signed the only way it helps is if you whitelist developers if you whitelist maintainers or signers if you will, so that if I said, okay, I trust Doug Wilson, so anything he publishes, that's cool. So let's say, you know, I go to, I mistype express and add an extra S on the end. Well, that would hopefully prompt me or fail. But that's a giant burden uh, on the user. And we've seen historically with, you know, PGP and things that those systems tend to be very difficult to use. However, Keybase is doing a very good job of making those things approachable. We see Maven actually requires signing of all packages for at least the Maven central repository, as well as going through a at least an initial review when I forget if it's for a new package or for a namespace, but they basically have a human that is checking the most basic of background checks before I allow you to publish something. Do you think that's a potential way of adding a level of trust into that network? Mozilla add-ons does that as well. There's many examples of, of doing that. And yes, I think that that is a, is a potential. Uh, it's an expensive potential, depending on who does it, right? And because, you know, NPM's a, a company, people, you know, kind of expect that from them. And I, I, there's also ways to sort of game that system because given the volume of things being published on NPM, I don't know if it's feasible. So I think that a community approach, a crowd approach is going to be the way to go. One other way that I guess we could potentially reduce the security risk of, I think it happens with a lot of these application level package management issues. We've seen in RubyGems and PyPI that 
There are different ways to get someone to download a malicious package, but often the act of making use of that malicious package is via the post in school scripts, which basically allow arbitrary code execution. Yes and no. We've seen both examples. So the simplistic attacks, they're like, oh, you can, you can execute arbitrary code via the post install. I'm just going to throw my payload there. Those are the unsophisticated drive-by attacks. But we're definitely starting to see now, let's use Express as an example, because we had one recently that was a module named ePress. And it required Express. And so it literally just exported Express so your stuff continued to work, and then it ran a crypto coin miner. It was at runtime, not install time. So we definitely see both. So one thing that my coworker, John Lamadola and I, we were talking about Nikolai's paper. He did a thesis on type of squatting. So we were talking about that paper, and he brought up an interesting thing from a defensive perspective on using just basic metrics when you first install a package for like the very first time, such as how long a package has existed, the number of download counts, and the number of dependents are very good indicators, very quickly visually. It's not perfect, but say when you we did an NPMI or a, you know gave you those things to, to look at very quickly, I think from a community perspective, we'd identify those very quickly. So we actually investigate using the library's data, almost like a proxy or a blocker, kind of basically plugs into a package manager pretending to be the registry and that doesn't always work when you're actually like trying to deal with the security and the compromisability of all of that infrastructure. But basically going, oh, you're trying to install package foobar and you have said the source rank, which is the library's kind of quality score, must be at least one. So it basically anything that's lower than one is considered to be either completely unknown and unused or has some negative aspect that has dragged that score down into the, the negative range either because it has a a bad license or it has been marked as being deprecated and shouldn't be used not necessarily required if you're reinstalling something maybe from a lock file where your application has already said i need this to continue to exist but for brand new packages like oh you we've never seen you install this before especially when you look at kind of has this been used in the open source community like has anyone ever depended on this on a GitHub repo that we can see? That's a really strong indication, especially as it stops the gamification to a certain degree because, or at least pushes it onto GitHub spam control <laughs> rather than onto individual users, is to go, let's assume that if it's being used in open source, then it is secure because other people are looking at it. And obviously that assumption, again, falls into the tragedy of the commons, but... It's better than never sharing any information with anyone. Yeah, it's hard to quantify that score. I think it can be useful data, and I think it would be an interesting experiment to do. Did you find that that worked well, or you said you experimented with that? So it's basically, it was an experiment that was taking the product that we built called Dependency CI, which happens at the pull request level, and trying to do it at the install level instead and would work in the same way. And dependency CI is a codified policy for your open source compliance, to use all the buzzwords, but basically checking that this project that you're installing has a license and doesn't have a terrible bus factor, doesn't have any currently open CVEs, things like that. 
in a fairly agnostic way to all the package managers, it basically works the same for everything. Obviously, when you actually try and do that at the command line level, it needs to be different for each different package manager. Some of them allow some kind of post-install, pre-install scripts. Others have no concept of doing anything like that. I think there's with the data that we're starting to collect to get that kind of social proof of usage is a potential way to kind of share the load. We talked about this a little bit with the update framework where potentially if we find either like we've installed a package that doesn't match with what we expected to be able to download from NPM either because the SHA-256 doesn't match or if signed packages are supported in that particular package manager that the package doesn't appear to match what we think it should have been signed with to actually then send that data back out to report it somewhere or to share it with the public that there's some potential issues here. But where you should send that to is a whole another question in itself because I guess making that data too open makes the uh, chicken and egg of how to not open yourself up to just a different level of attack is a difficult thing. Yeah, I've I've always been the paranoid proponent of, of, of responsible disclosure, right? Like, make sure you report it and make sure that it's fixed before you disclose it. But in most cases, there's not a lot of risk behind some of these vulnerabilities. So it's just like, just get it out there, let the community police it and control it, and then be able to get that into the hands of people installing them very, very quickly. Are there any other mitigation tactics that we haven't talked about yet? So we didn't mention shared block lists. I guess we have the idea of the allow list or we mentioned potentially you could just verify each user and then say, oh, that user is fine from now on. I guess on the flip side, we could put in place block lists that say there are known sets of names or or maybe even when you're at the published level, this looks like it clashes with a name of a popular package already we're not going to give you that name, at least in the shared namespace. Package managers that all have shared namespaces, that's more of an issue than the ones that have unique namespaces. Although then you kind of just push it another level and uh, you can have Andrew spelt with the R and the E the wrong way around as another user that signed up. Yeah, it definitely just kind of snowballs. We do a bit of a block list within NSP when NPM finds out about those, you know, they get kind of reports on this, this is a type of module or whatever. Uh, we work closely there and get that into our database so that it, you know, you get a little bit of a block list. But I think you could definitely take that a step further. And, you know, you run the risk of blocking legitimate modules. I've done a lot of experimenting around trying to identify typo modules in the registry, such as find all the typos of Express. Do any of those have a dependency that is expressed? Turns out most of those are you know legit modules that are just some weird wrapper or some garbage module. It's really hard. I've been trying to discern a pattern that fits there. and I think you'd end up blocking legitimate code. Are there any ideas we could lift from the way that domain name systems handle these kinds of risks? I guess you have the idea of the um, different levels of security certs that are available. That's like That would be like code signing, right? That would be similar. So that matches with code signing. And then the DNS host being able to say, someone's reported this is a bad thing, so we're going to yank google or similar and basically just remove it from... Yeah, and, and NPM does that. NPM will drop a package and then put a security placeholder. They'll take control of that package. And one difference is that with DNS, 
there's all kinds of servers all around the world which can just give arbitrary answers about what is google.com right like kind of the problem you are trying to solve there is when your computer asks where is google.com and the dns server says google.com is 4.2.2.1 then you can confirm that ah yes that is an actual google.com that's where the ssl certificate comes into play where you can verify that and say yes this certificate was issued to a google.com address so therefore that ip i got was accurate whereas you don't really have that in package management worlds you don't really get to ask an arbitrary random server that could be attacker controlled hey what is express.js and it doesn't come back and say it's this arbitrary bit of javascript over here yeah we're definitely not designed to be a, a distributed system like that you would definitely have to have a third party nsp could just start signing sha hashes you know, we could just start saying that, like, hey, we looked at this and we signed it and we assert that this is good. We could do that and offer a wrapper around NPM. I don't know how performant it would be or how you know useful it would be. I think that's similar to another aspect of the update framework where they would have a robot signing the packages as they were published and then having someone sign those with an offline key on a regular basis as a way of ensuring those things weren't compromised at the server level or the registry level. Do you think there's any room for kind of, as lots of people are working on these security issues across different package managers, kind of sharing of potential solutions or sharing of potential attack vectors between the different package managers? As far as I know, there's no concerted effort to share these things across managers. You probably know what this is. Isn't there a a community package project that's run by some of the folks at NPM? There is a Discord chat room. It's called package.community and it's in its early stages, but there's a good number of the maintainers in there. I've been lurking there for a while. I haven't seen any security talk there. So that would be an interesting kind of angle to start to push in there to kind of try and get more people thinking and sharing their solutions, especially with the system level package manager teams that are definitely kind of been dealing with these security issues for a long time i hope you've told them about our podcast yes yes i have (laughs) good i'm keen for people to come away from this podcast without feeling like it's a nebulous situation where there's nothing they can do for their own security there's just this broad cloud of potential attack vectors and they're just pulling in all this unaudited code that could be doing anything What are some things that people could do, whether they are a package maintainer or a package user or somebody else technically inclined to improve their own security? On the one hand, it is sort of nebulous and it's never going to be perfect. I think that there's definitely steps, though, that we can take. The first being we got to have better passwords. I mean, people really need to step their game up when it comes to passwords. It's bad and people should be embarrassed. So that's step one. Enable two-factor auth if the, if the registry supports it for publishing. You know, from there, I think that for consumers of modules, it's unfortunate that it's necessary. I think that reviewing the things that you require and depend upon, getting involved in the conversation of how do we share this information is a responsibility. You know, I've said this for years. You're responsible for what you require and you should take a cursory look at, at the things that you're installing and using. That said, you know, from a DevOps perspective, don't be mixing your dev environments and your prod environments. Don't be having those AWS credentials and those 
tokens just sort of laying around, right? Be cautious with, with that information. Finally, I think that, you know, using a tool like NSP just to get that blacklist is a quick and easy way to just quickly check your, your dependency tree, at least for NPM. You know, I believe there's one for other managers as well. Very quickly, what makes a good password? I can't say those words on this podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe you could say things like, don't use it anywhere else. Have it be non-dictionary words, a certain length, not predictable. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're onto it right there. Non, non-dictionary words. Length matters. Longer the better. Just something random and then don't reuse it. I use one password to manage all my passwords, which has a nice password generation tool, as well as it has the ability to show you where you're using the same password across multiple sites and can help you easily avoid that for at least all your previous passwords. And then it also kind of has a nice way of storing those rather than just putting them in text files, like it's actually encrypted and fairly secure, rather than just storing it on your notepad or in your Dropbox. I think there's lots of opinions about password managers, and for the most part, I don't care. Just use one. Pick one, use one. Don't share passwords. In the service of moving this from the more abstract to the concrete, can you tell us about some of the more notable typo squatting and other package-related security issues that stick in your mind? So we've had uh, an environment variable stealer, right? Cross-env was a module, and there's a few variants of that. So stealing environment variables, those precious you know, API keys out of your environment, opening up remote shells as well as Bitcoin miners. There's a few innocuous ones too that are just sort of non-malicious analytics things. I have one out there. It's called BotBait. It's meant to just see, are there other bots downloading and analyzing packages, right? It calls home. It tells you what node version you're running. And there's a few of those out there that just are little experimental modules that really don't cause much harm and that aren't typoed necessarily. They're just packages. One of my personal favorites is totally not a virus. Trust me, I'm a dolphin. That's a package that I published. Is it actually a dolphin? It console logs a picture of the totally not a virus. Trust me, I'm a dolphin meme. And it feels a little bit late in the episode to be asking this, but what exactly is the Node security platform and how does it help the security of NPM? Uh, the Node security platform is just, it's continuous security monitoring. So any of the data that we sort of get into our system, we can apply that at the pull request time to tell you if you've injected any vulnerabilities since the last pull request from a dependency perspective or uh, nightly checks to see if we've introduced a new advisory into our database. And then we have the NSP CLI, which is just a, a quick one-time, you can test your node project and its dependency tree for you know, known vulnerabilities. So essentially it's examining the package.lock file and checking for anything which has been manually flagged as malicious. Exactly. So if we've added it to our database via things that we've got reported from the community or things that we've found, it'll flag those things. And if you just have a package JSON, it checks that. If you've got a package lock, it checks that. If you've got an NPM shrink wrap, it'll check that. And it'll, it'll take the proper version of what would be installed at that moment in time. And do you get any analytics on that? Do you know how many people are finding and updating their packages as a result of NSP? That would be great to know. I should do that. We do not have a lot of analytics. There's 7,000-ish repos based on the GitHub dependency graph that rely on NSP or have it as a dependency. And we do, I don't know how many million checks 
a month. So there's lots of CIs that depend on the CLI. But I don't know the stats on what's found versus not. I feel like I should maybe redirect that question to Andrew as the person here who is spidering all the various projects on GitHub and seeing when their packages get updated. So libraries doesn't actually index the CVE data right now. It's basically the next thing on our to-do list. Mostly haven't done that because libraries supports 34 different package managers and trying to normalize the CVE data across all of those things is a bit of a nightmare. We're working with GitHub and either OpenShift or OpenStack. I forget, they've all got such confusing names. But to try and break the back of at least the normalization and a standard format for CVEs that are connected directly to packages. And that's going from basically what the Node Security Project and then Node Security Platform put in place as a a nice standard a good few years ago and trying to kind of shape the the known and the unknown CVEs across all of the disparate sources of places they're reporting so that you can actually have a nice shared public list of all CVEs and how they attach to those things, which then we'd be able to go, ah, we've seen that these packages have people run into this thing and then how how quickly do they update after they have heard about the, the CVE being reported but currently we we don't do that right now. And it's the number one requested feature of the data set, which hopefully we'll be able to do that soon. That's quite the challenge. So I I wish you luck. Yeah, it's one of the more fun ones. The other aspect that we are looking into is to try and index the system level packages and link them to the application level dependencies that use them. So that might be things like uh, Node SAS actually depends on the C library libsas, or uh, Nokagiri actually needs libxml as the C library installed on the system, which is different depending on the system package manager and the operating system that you're installing it on. But that could potentially highlight the CVEs that don't directly get reported against things like JavaScript packages because they're reported against C libraries, but those JavaScript packages then potentially bind to those C libraries and pick up the vulnerabilities as they go along. Earlier on, we asked you about NPM and what you liked about NPM. And I realize now we should probably have given you an opportunity to kind of turn the finger of accusation back on all the other package managers out there. Are there any package managers out there that you think are doing things in a completely wrong-headed way or making life harder for themselves, whether security-related or otherwise? I tend to not like to be negative and finger-pointing. That's one thing that security people are really good at, and I try to not do that. And I don't pay attention to a lot of the other package managers just because I tend to live in the Node world, so I don't have a lot of complaints there. I think a lot of those things... The problems exist on all of those platforms. The one thing that does affect my world is Yarn. What's interesting about Yarn is, in something that I'm not sure people know, is that Yarn man in the middles all the traffic to the registry. So it could effectively modify the tarball and modify the hash, I believe, that you get. And so that has concerns for me. So for people that aren't aware, Yarn is an alternative JavaScript package manager for the Node world and I guess for the front-end world built by Facebook. I believe they run their own registry and they're essentially mirroring NPM. Is that right? I think it's only a proxy at this point because if you go to their registry, 
and you hit the endpoint that their client hits and you hit their domain and you hit the registry, it shows the same uptime. So I think as a transparent proxy at this point, but that may change. But I, I could be wrong. It was just an observation of mine looking at the data, trying to determine if it was a proxy or if they were copying the data or what. But you definitely are requesting the hashes and the tarball from their systems. Right. So you potentially lose some of those security benefits that NPM are putting in because, for one thing, you can't guarantee that everything served over the NPM domain name is going to be the same thing because you don't actually talk to NPM, the registry. That'd be nice to have signing for, have you know either NPM or somebody asserting a signature there. I think NPM you know, doing some signing there would go a long way to protect against, say, some tampering there. It's not that I don't trust the Yarn team or trust that. It just adds another piece of surface area. Yeah, my question was less about trying to start beef in the package management community and more about exploring the differences between various package managers because different ones do make different decisions and different trade-offs and prioritize things differently. I thought the whole point of this podcast was to just start beef in the package management world. (laughs) Okay, that seems like a good point to wrap up. Thanks so much for coming on, Adam. This has been a fascinating look at the topic of typo squatting and kind of getting an insider look at how NPM is dealing with their security issues and their growing pains as they've expanded. And also hearing kind of how this node security platform is keeping people secured without necessarily being aware that that's the, the hard work that you're doing in the background. Well, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alex. It's been great to, uh, to be able to chat about that. Thank you. If people wanted to learn more about your work and the Node Security platform, where should they go online to do that? NodeSecurity.io or LiftSecurity.io. And as Andrew says, that wraps everything up for this episode. We will be back very soon with some more package management talk and we'll keep exploring this fantastic world of open source development. Bye for now. Bye.